0: so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, there's been a lot of movement and the senior leadership of the U.S. military. Uh, Yesterday, Defense Secretary Esper was, quote, terminated by President Trump. And today, Politico is reporting that the Pentagon's acting policy chief resigned today after falling out of favor with the White House. What does this mean for our leadership of our military? There's absolutely no one better to have this discussion with than retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis, former military commander of NATO and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, Admiral, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start right there. Lots of turnover, starting at the top with our Secretary of Defense. What is your take?
3: There's no reason to do this kind of decapitation of the Department of Defense while we're in an inherently unsettled period of a transition. And let me tell you three things that really worried me. One is that the Secretary of Defense is very tactically involved. Uh, He or she is someone who uh, makes the crucial individual decisions about what unit is going to deploy to Afghanistan. And we've got troops in combat all over the world. Number two, at the operational level, kind of the theater level, uh, he or she is a person who makes decisions about should the carrier battle group go to the Arabian Gulf or to the South China Sea, And number three, strategically, the job of the Secretary of Defense is to work with our allies to guard the nuclear codes. So what's happened is we've uh, fired the current Secretary of Defense, who, by the way, is the uh, fourth one in four years. And they brought in a a, a retired Army colonel. He's not qualified for the job remotely. And uh, his name is Chris Miller. And he's going to have to try and learn the job and presumably do the job for the next 71 days. It's dangerous.
2: Yes, this particular person who resigned wrote a letter of resignation saying, now as ever our long-term success depends on adhering to the U.S. Constitution. All public servants swear to support and defend political reporting that Anderson had clashed with White House personnel and that there is expected to be several departures in the wake of espers firing i mean how how got it out could the pentagon be by the time we know you know exactly when president biden is going to take office if indeed it is a president biden
3: i think we're going to see this kind of bleeding of talent across the entire administration a lot of people have been hanging on waiting for the election I think the majority of these folks would be willing to stay and have a reasonable, sensible transition. And by the way, I've been personally involved in a number of these transitions at very high levels in the Pentagon. Normally, um, despite the rancor of an election, the two sides get together because everyone knows, especially in the Pentagon, it's about our national security. It's bigger than Republicans and Democrats. Boy, that doesn't seem to be how this is trending at the moment, and it is very concerning.
1: Admiral, I'm sure you still have plenty of contacts with the Pentagon. What is the thought coming out of the Pentagon of what perhaps they perceive President Trump's strategy or endgame here? Does he have one?
3: Um, I don't think you can use the word Trump and strategy in the same sentence, and he would probably be proud of that. Uh, he's a transactional player, he's someone who is famously instinctive, operates from his gut, and at the moment his gut is upset because he lost the election. Let's be frank about what's happened here. Um, I'll give you the good news, if I can, Paul and Bonnie. It's that the uniformed military will uniformly uh, park this off to the side. They'll look at this as the civilian leadership is in turmoil, but I assure you people like General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all of the chiefs of defense, and all the way down to the most junior sailors and airmen and Marines and soldiers forward deployed. They just park this off to the side. They keep their eye on the mission in front of us. They'll keep us safe. But, boy, we do them a disservice, and we dishonor their uh, volunteer spirit and their sense of mission when we let things just dissolve like this. It's, It's a bad day for our national defense.
2: Yeah, morale is not going to be buoyed by this. Politico is reporting that this potentially paves the way for Anthony Tata to take over the policy shop, so the the policy part of the Pentagon, let's say. Do you know this man?
3: I do. He's a retired uh, one-star general. He had a a respectable career in the Armed Forces. Um, He is someone who has uh, been a Trump loyalist. Uh, throughout the campaign of 2016 and has been a Fox News commentator. He's extremely conservative. Uh, The administration has been trying to get him confirmed, but that's been very difficult because of a whole series of inflammatory statements he he has made over the years. Um, He is not the kind of balanced, uh, centrist, Uh, That is necessary in a job like that, especially during a transition period. So unfortunately, I think this is not going to be a helpful choice. He's a partisan. We don't need partisanship right now.
1: Admiral, from your experience, what do you believe our adversaries, whether it be Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, what is their view of what's happening right now, strictly within the Pentagon?
3: Yeah, I'll give you two words, high fives. Um, In (laughs) Moscow, uh, Beijing, Pyongyang, Tehran, Caracas, Havana, this is exactly what our opponents hoped for, is this kind of uh, turbulence. They feel as though we're taking our eye off the ball. It it opens the door for all kinds of uh, mischievous behavior by Iran and the Arabian Gulf, or Kim Jong-un, this would be an ideal time for him to launch another uh, long-range intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, Overall, this is greeted very positively, and and frankly, uh, election interference both in 2016 and 2020 is real, um, but it was less about uh, doing anything for Donald Trump. It was all about creating division in our society. So let us hope, and I know this sounds like an extremely negative uh, interview, and it is, but let us hope that um, as we get through this transition, that the two sides can come together and work through this. Uh, because these are these are big issues, and it is a dangerous moment for America and the world.
2: But our adversaries know that too, right, Admiral? I mean, they know that President Trump is potentially on the way out at this point, and so if there were to be an attack launched, it might be a very dangerous time for them to do that because there might be, you know, a, an, an unequal retaliation. Um, you've
3: got it right that this kind of... Uh, Destabilizing moment can cut both ways. It makes the calculus harder for our opponents. But what I would argue, Vani, is the danger is not so much of a massive strategic level attack. It's that um, in this period, when perhaps opponents would feel as though our military, our intelligence services were distracted and somewhat decapitated, and by the way, we ought to recognize there are rumors that the CIA director and the FBI director may be fired. We ought to recognize that there is room for quiet, deleterious behavior. That's what concerns me.
2: Admiral, thank you. It's always illuminating to speak with you. Admiral James Stavridis, U.S. Navy Admiral, former military commander of NATO.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing. The passion to keep investing. The best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. oral arguments going on right now at the Supreme Court. A court shaped by President Trump of course hearing a challenge to the Affordable Care Act and in the last few minutes we're hearing Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh both saying they're inclined to leave the rest of the law intact even if Republican challengers succeeded in invalidating the so-called individual mandate. Let's bring in Bloomberg legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law June Grasso. June I know you've been keeping an eye on what's going on right now at the Supreme Court. Where are we? Beyond what I've just outlined?
5: Well, the argument started with a standing question. And this is a legal question as to whether or not the states that are challenging this and the plaintiffs challenging this have what's called a stake in the outcome. Were they injured? And a lot of the justices were questioning whether the states here really had standing to even bring this lawsuit. So that was the first. Barrier, so to speak, there was very little talk about the merits of it because a lot of the justices wanted to jump from that right to whether it was severable. And as you said, two of the justices, the chief justice and Justice Kavanaugh, came out really strongly, saying that in their opinion this was a severable thing. So that that means that if they can take away that one part of the law, they could leave the rest of the law standing, and that would give them that would give them five votes for severability.
1: So, June, I think the, the summary here is, are they going to throw out the entire Obamacare or just certain aspects of it? If you can summarize that for us, that'd be helpful.
5: All right. So that's severability. The question is whether. So they're challenging this one part of the law. They're saying because Congress zeroed out the tax penalty and left the mandate in with no practical consequences, then they have to strike down the whole law. That's that's the opinion of the Trump administration and the Republican states here. The comeback to that is, no, you don't have to sever out the whole law. You don't have to throw out the whole law. You could just take out that one provision of the law and leave the law standing. And, you know, the court in its precedence has done this several times. And you heard... Chief Justice John Roberts really uh, going at one of the, the Texas Solicitor General, who is up still up now, I think, and the Texas Solicitor General, and he, he basically said to him, I took some notes, one second, let me just get, he said the mandate was critical. Now, everything is, fu- I'm sorry, he said, well, it's well, hard for me to argue that Congress intended the law to fall and didn't even try to repeal the act. Why wouldn't Congress have repealed the act? So that's the whole thing. If they wanted the law to fall, why wouldn't they just have taken the act away, which they didn't. They just took away the individual mandate.
2: Yeah, I mean, Kabul. there was conflicting, you know, messages, even from the White House, right, about allowing pre-existing conditions and then taking away the individual mandate. I mean, there were so many different messages. But that's the point here, right? If you take away the mandate, if you excise the mandate, in the words of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, then the whole law is in trouble anyway, because it sort of depends on everybody paying into it, Right.
5: No, actually, I mean, they didn't really go into it that way. What they look at is right now they're saying, look, the individual mandate doesn't matter because the law is working without it. People are buying insurance as Verrilli, Donald Verrilli, who was the former Solicitor General, as he argued, he said that, you know, the mandate, it worked without it was a carrot and a stick thing initially, for Congress to say you have to pay this tax to get this and we have to get this law rolling. But now they found out that they don't need the stick because it's working without it. So what they're saying is you don't need this mandate to let the law work. And what Justice Kavanaugh and Roberts are saying, yes, we can excise out this. We can take that little part out of the law and the law still stands. And, you know, uh, Justice Breyer really came on strong with the Texas Solicitor General and he Put all these examples forward. Suppose you know in the in the uh, during the war, Congress said buy bonds in law. Suppose Congress says plant a tree in law or clean up the yard in law. In law, but there is no penalty for doing any of that. Well, are you going to say that all of those laws are unconstitutional because there's no penalty attached? And a lot of the justices came out with that. Also, the Chief Justice and Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh said, suppose you had you're required to have. Uh, American flag flying, but there's no penalty if you don't. Does that mean that, you know, you have to take down the entire law? So um, I think that most of the justices are heading toward the idea that even if there is standing, which there's a question of whether or not they're standing, that still they wouldn't throw the entire law out.
1: June, give us a sense of timing here. This is arguably one of the more important cases uh, in front of the Supreme Court. When should we expect a ruling?
5: Well, I I would say around June, you'd expect a ruling in normal times unless the justices decide for some reason to speed this up. But, you know, I don't really see any need to speed this up at this point. This case has been challenged so many times. This is the third time that it came up to the Supreme Court. So I don't think there's any harm in in holding off on the opinion in this case. Uh, Maybe they prefer to hold off on it, actually. So um, I think we'll see it in June. All the big decisions come down at the end of the term. If the term lasts when it usually does, we'll see these big decisions in June.
2: It will be fascinating because, you know, it is a, a court that is more shaped by President Trump and he has boasted of getting rid of the individual mandate. But you do wonder if there won't be slippage at some point down the line that if there isn't a penalty, then those who, who can't afford really to, to keep up their, 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 uh, their insurance premiums and so on, if they won't sort of end up out of the system and if that won't push it up for everybody else. Anyway, we'll have to see how it goes, but uh, oral arguments are always fascinating at the Supreme Court and June Grosso always has a great handle on what's going on. She will be back of course hosting Bloomberg Law so do tune in for that for more of a summary of what happened. It's an 80-minute argument by the way, so you know, it's yep. quick and we also know that oral arguments at the Supreme Court tend not to have a huge amount of impact over the actual uh, decision. At least that's been what's the, been the case in the past, but uh, always interesting to listen to. Again, June Grosso, Bloomberg analyst and host of Bloomberg Law. All right, let's get straight to Dr. Amish Adolja of Johns Hopkins University. A fantastic conversation always with Dr. Adolja. Let's begin with the Eli Lilly antibody drug. Dr. Adolja, after yesterday's Pfizer announcement, what should we make of the ramp-up of positive announcements?
6: I think this is all a a testament to the fact that when we actually start to try and invest and technological solutions to this infectious disease problem they will bear fruit and i think this is a lesson for other infectious disease threats and, and we will get through this covid 19 pandemic it's going to still take some time with the pfizer with the even with the pfizer news with the lily drugs to, to get through this winter which is going to be rough in the northern hemisphere and uh but but there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel coming and we are getting getting to a point where we have much many more tools to fight this virus than we did in the beginning Dr. Odalja,
1: give us. You talk about this, and, and President like Biden called it a you know a long uh, dark winter coming up, um, and we're seeing the numbers just kind of go through the roof, set new records. Unfortunately, um, it, you know, just from the New York perspective, last March and April, it seemed to take you know a month or so to start to really bend that curve. Do you think there's a simple, a similar scenario here, or is something different about this second slash third wave?
6: I think there's something different about this third surge because there's a lot of transmission that's going on with people's small gatherings, and I think this definitely has a lot to do with pandemic fatigue, which wasn't there during the, the first surge because there, that was people were scared it was a new virus. The second surge was really bars and restaurants and, and, and that type of activity, which this one this third surge is a little bit different epidemiologically, so it's going to be much harder to control So I don't know that we'll bend the curve in all of these places around the country that are that are seeing surges. It's just it's very difficult now to get people to to comply that haven't complied. So I I really fear for the worst in some places where their hospitals are already under stress.
2: You know, the president elect Joe Biden, he's trying to do something, but he's limited in what he can actually do. Can he have an impact? I mean, he, he obviously can't do anything at a federal level.
6: I do think he can have an impact just by bringing uh, the moral authority of the of the presidency, which he's going to assume in in, a, in several weeks, as well as the team that he's assembled, which can constitute some of the best minds in the field that can start to issue guidance, can start to speak to the American public, and maybe, with that kind of clear messaging with a single voice without any of the mixed messaging and the evasions and the misinformation you may see Americans actually start to accept this information and be able to modify their activities in a way that decreases the spread of the virus and it's also important for him to articulate how he turns his plan into actionable items that state and local health departments and hospitals are going to use so people know what what to expect and know what's coming in January So, Doctor, we had that good news
1: from Pfizer yesterday uh, about their vaccine. Of course, there are other groups out there, Moderna uh, as well. How do you think this is going to all play out as we get into 2021, maybe the the mid part of the year? Are there going to be a number of vaccine choices for consumers? Will doctors prescribe different vaccines
6: for different people? How do you think that will play out? I mean, ideally, I hope that's the case, that we have so many vaccines that we have a choice. And and, w- and what might happen is that you have more than one vaccine, get emergency use approval, and you're pooling all those resources together to vaccinate the country. And you just have to keep track of who gets what vaccine, which can be logistically challenging. But I think we would be uh, happy to be in a position where we have have that as our problem. The other thing is is that some of these vaccines may do better in different subgroups. So we may have targeted vaccines for different groups, just like we do for influenza, where we give certain types of flu vaccines to the elderly population and other types to other populations. So that would be something I would expect to see. So it's important that we continue the research and development and the clinical trials on all of the other candidates, because I don't think this is going to be a one vaccine solution. We're likely gonna have many different vaccines and the vaccine we get in a couple of years for coronavirus may be something completely different than what we're seeing now in the clinical trials.
2: If you don't mind, talk to us a little bit about Europe right now, because we're seeing France coming very, very close to ICU capacity. That is the whole entirety of France. It's already above 92% capacity. We all have a major problem as well in Denmark with mink. Explain this to us for those who haven't been following this story.
6: Well, you, you have to remember that many of these European countries, what they relied on was an economic shutdown, a lockdown type of approach without actually investing in the public health infrastructure needed to think about, to, to be able to deal with the cases that would inevitably occur once you started to get people socially interacting. I think that there is this kind of magical thinking that this virus can just go away with, with having people social distance for a period of time. And that's not the case. The virus has established itself in the human population. It has a wide spectrum of illness with many mild cases that never get diagnosed. So when you when you lift the shutdown, when you lift the lockdown, if you don't have the ability to test, trace and isolate, if you have an expanded hospital capacity, you're going to go right back to where you were. We're nowhere near herd immunity for this. And this is a, a, a lesson that if you don't invest in the public health infrastructure, you will continue to make the same mistake over and over again and not have any kind of sustainable approach to controlling this virus.
1: Doctor, you're part of one of the biggest and most well-respected medical facilities in the world. Give us a sense of how the rank-and-file people, the doctors, the nurses, the orderlies, what's the morale of those people right now
6: as they face what, again, might be a very long winter? Well, it varies, and I do think that talking to my colleagues uh, all around the country, that this is something that everybody is dreading because we know inevitably that the cases are going to increase. We're already seeing it happen in many parts of the country, that, that hospitals now have more COVID patients than they ever had before outside of the, the New York area. And we're, we're worried about it because now there's a lot of complacency in the public and people in the community don't seem to care what's happening in their own hospitals. So I do think that that is demoralizing to realize that people, uh, they, they may clap for us and they may call us heroes, but if they're not actually taking the actions that are not going to put us in harm's way, that are not going to put our hospitals into crisis so other medical care can't be rendered. I mean, it really is all empty applause.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's a desperate situation. And also in places like nursing homes where, you know, the staffing levels have gone down after all of these people worked so hard to shepherd their patients through this, or to you know, to or worse. A lot, many patients died, and then you know, because these nursing homes couldn't take in new patients, they didn't have money, and staff were let go. It really is there's there's, there's almost nothing good about this.
1: No, there isn't. And uh, it's interesting. Dr. Amish uh, Adalja, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar and Infectious Disease Physician for the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and this radio station. So, Vonnie, some some tough, tough months coming up uh, for this pandemic here. Uh, That's tempered somewhat by the advances that uh, our scientists and medical research uh, folks are making in terms of therapeutics uh, and vaccine.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: A steepening in the yield curve, a little bit of optimism out there in the marketplace. Let's get some more color on that. We do that whenever we talk interest rates and yield curves with Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, thanks for joining us. What's the treasury market trading over the last several days and maybe even you know, more than that? What's that telling you?
7: Yeah, so there's obviously the vaccine news from yesterday was uh, was pretty optimistic. We're bouncing right off a pretty important technical level right now in ten-year yields at around zero point nine six percent. So, you know, we're talking about basis points because yields are so low. But but that's a pretty important level because that's where we got to uh, back in June. And if we break above that, then then we could see a, a pretty significant move, maybe well above one percent for the first time uh, since March. So um, yeah, you know the the I think as we see light at the end of the tunnel, you'll see more of this bear steepening you mentioned where the market sells off and longer term interest rates tend to go up a little bit more than uh, or, or potentially a lot more than shorter term interest rates. So that it's not not surprising that you're seeing this on a kind of a more risk on tone that you've had the last couple of days.
2: At what point, Ira, does it become less about a better economy and more about inflation?
7: Yeah, I don't think it does. Uh, So you know, we've seen a pretty significant rebound in inflation expectations from the lows uh, in the second quarter of this year. So uh, back to basically the range that we were in for most of 2018 and 2019. So um, so so I don't see inflation expectations going up a whole heck of a lot, nor inflation itself. The the reason being that even though we might rebound, um, you know, pretty sharply in in terms of growth, what what really drives inflation in the U.S. and this is I think very underappreciated and understood it's really wages so you need significant wage gains and particularly wage gains by lower income sectors in order to get a sustainable uptick in inflation because most of what us consumers uh, buy is actually uh, services and those services all most of the prices of those services is uh, are wages so you really need unemployment to be back down toward you know 5% 4% probably in order to get the lower income spectrum higher Again, and, uh, and also jobs being created and uh, new businesses being created to drive that inflation and inflation expectations higher. So, so I, I don't think that that's going to happen, which, which is very important, actually, Vonnie, because the, the last thing that I would mention on this score is that means that if we do continue to get higher interest rates, I think it's really going to be uh, tips, uh, uh, tips that really do poorly in this situation. And not because inflation is not going up, because inflation is going up, but it's because with yields moving higher. Uh, real yields move much higher. So, so tips actually can have a negative return, even if inflation is one5 you know,
1: to 2%. Ira, tell us what happened, if anything, really. How did the Treasury market react to the election news uh, from last week?
7: yeah it, it was volatile um, it, it didn't really move significantly out of the, the ranges that they were in until uh, until yesterday when you got the uh, the, the news about about Pfizer yeah you, you know the market was was hadn't been anticipating I think uh, a, a blue wave and that blue wave would have uh, probably meant that we'd have a very large fiscal stimulus a lot more bonds outstanding so the curve uh, like like you had mentioned before Paul uh, the, the curve had bare steepened in anticipation of that as it looked like we were not going to get the blue wave and we'd have a split government, um, that, that re- unwound a little bit. And, but again, well within the ranges that we've been in the last three or four months. So, um, th- you know, so I think at this point, one of the things that I've been looking at is how much new supply are we likely to get? What is the next size of a fiscal stimulus? Because I think we will get a fiscal stimulus, but how? And th- the way is that, um, is that I think that, that now uh, uh, a President Biden, uh, assuming that um, you know, he, he is the, ultimately the winner, um, I think that, that he will compromise with some of the moderates in the uh, in the Senate on the Republican side, and you will get a, a reasonably big fiscal stimulus, one and a half to two trillion dollars. Our baseline is around two trillion, and that will um, still need to be funded at least a little bit through uh, through Treasury issuance.
2: Ira, what will be the difference if it's one trillion versus, say, just one point two trillion or one point five trillion?
7: Yeah. So, so, the, so one trillion—it's it's interesting. So, one trillion dollars, when it comes to the Treasury market, means that they don't have to issue any new bonds because the Treasury Department right now has over a trillion dollars sitting in cash uh, with the Federal Reserve. So, they they can just use that money in order to fund a small fiscal stimulus. A larger fiscal stimulus over one and a half trillion, and they'll have to continue to issue uh, um, issue a lot of um, net uh, net Treasury bonds over the next twelve months in order to fund anything larger than about one and a half trillion. Um
1: Fiscal stimulus. You know, it's interesting. We're going to get something, as you were just mentioning, your baseline is $2 billion. Is there $2 billion. a scenario we get nothing? And if that were to occur, what do you think the Treasury market would do?
7: Yeah. So, so I think if we don't get any fiscal stimulus, I think we are priced in for some kind of fiscal stimulus. And, and if not, I think we do probably rally. So you wind up seeing 10-year yields back in the old range, uh, call it 60 to 80 basis points. Um, you know, so kind of pretty boring.
2: Ira, very briefly, the Fed made a comment yesterday which was interesting because it was right after the election. Tell us how much the Fed is weighing in on on this economy right now.
7: Yeah, so well, that that was on fiscal stu- uh, on financial stability. So they they do a quarterly financial stability report, and um, you know in that they basically said that the virus really mattered, and and um, the, the it, you know I think that that they're worried about whether or not uh, markets are functioning, and markets are functioning. So I think the Fed can probably step away from that a little bit.
2: All right, Ira Jersey, always with the latest. Thank you so much. Ira Jersey is chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence on the bond market. And uh, the universe of fixed income out there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide
4: at Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?